This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back, returning to our business series again this week. After a bit of a hiatus from that, last week, of course, featuring the incredible Rabbi Emanuel Feldman, the Atlanta builder and author and speaker. But this week, we do return to some of the business leaders. However, not one who is in Israel, but rather, Shia Rubenstein is a fascinating figure on the New York business scene, as well as on both the New York and national, increasingly so, philanthropic scene, a person who utilizes his position in business as the owner of a construction company and a real estate developer to do incredible amounts of good for the Jewish community. He runs food rescue programs, food service programs, job placement, networking conferences, and a whole host of services largely subsumed under the umbrella of the JCC of Marine Park, an area in Brooklyn, and he founded this Jewish Community Center several years ago to host many of these amazing services. Shia Rubenstein, as you'll shortly discover, is an irrepressible individual with an incredibly diverse array of talents. He is a musician, a singer, who recently released an amazing album of Yiddish songs dedicated to Holocaust survivors, as well as a slew of other endeavors. I met with Shia a couple of months ago already. Thankfully, we have a wonderful backlog of interviews and we're just getting to release this one. But we met already in November at what's called the Tribe Works Conference. It was a first ever initiative bringing together over a dozen Jewish organizations that all help with job placement and networking and mentorship under one umbrella to execute a fabulous conference featuring major business personalities and a whole list of panels and keynotes in major areas of interest to the Jewish entrepreneur. Shia and I sat down at the end of that conference and I think you'll hear some of that conference buzz in the background and get a real authentic flavor for what was a very charged and exciting day, a day of real Jewish unity, a day of fellowship and mentorship, and hopefully a day that helped many fledgling business owners develop their craft and enhance their emerging enterprises. And so we go to the Staten Island Hilton Hotel for our conversation with entrepreneur and social philanthropist, Shia Rubenstein. We are here in the Hilton of Staten Island with Shia Rubenstein, the CEO of the JCC of Marine Park, uh, construction company owner, and many other things. Did I get, any, did I get that part right, Shia? Well, good afternoon. Thank <laughs> you for uh, allowing me to be on your program. Yeah, I, I, I always risk the chance of sounding like a jack of all trades, yeah. 
There we go. It's interesting. You know, I think this, the title CEO of the JCC of Marine Park is kind of like a cover for about a hundred other things that I've learned that you actually do, sort of a, uh, a front. So uh, we'll get to all that and understand exactly what it is that you do, in fact, do. Um, let's just start with where we are today because we're sitting here at a conference called Tribe Works, which is a funky title, and there's hundreds of business professionals, Jewish business professionals, uh, largely observant Jewish business professionals of all different stripes here at this conference, which you have organized. Um, so just tell us kind of where we're actually sitting. Sure, and once again, thank you for the opportunity, and I'm really glad that you, uh, you came uh, to uh, this venue, to this hotel for, uh, for this conference to see it for yourself. I hope you got a uh, good room rate uh, on the, the best. House. Okay, good. <laughs> I had inside connections. So. <laughs> okay, there you go. So essentially, um, just to give you a little uh, thirty-second synopsis. So I, I started an organization uh, about ten years ago called the JCC of Marine Park, which started as an advocacy organization for the local communities of Marine Park, Brooklyn, and Mill Basin, Brooklyn, and Flatbush, Brooklyn. But um, after we after we started the advocacy organization the needs started to arise and as a young community with for the most part the demographic being between the ages of 24 and 40 you know there were, there were a lot of people that needed whether it was jobs or networking or social services jobs programs youth programs so essentially that JCC just turned into a real community umbrella where we have Brooklyn's largest youth programs and we have food pantries um, we expanded you know to many other communities over time but we started off as an advocacy turned social service turned JCC Jewish Community Center. Now, about five years ago, I had an epiphany. I said, if I have the infrastructure and we're trying to help local community and doing so much for them, how much more would it take to help a larger demographic? So we took the first project, which is free computer courses. So it sounds very simple, free QuickBooks, Excel, Word, LinkedIn, time management, you know, social media, the ABC of computers for that age demographic. And I opened 10 centers throughout New York City, from Harlem to Queens to Brooklyn. And again, for those who are not familiar, Brooklyn is a very large place. We have over 3 million people and in Brooklyn. And Brooklyn itself is like one of the top 10 largest cities in America or something like that. That's true. So essentially, um, I opened 10 centers uh, teaching free computer courses. And when people came, we gave them the free computer courses, but of course we tried giving them all the other services that we offer. So after you take the computer course, do you need a resume? Do you need someone to help you find a job? Do you need a mock interview? Do you need a suit and tie for an interview? So that's how the social services connected with the work program, connected with the JCC, connected with the city of New York. Um, so over the past five years when I started to grow and service more of the broader New York community I started creating industry specific events under a brand called JCon for Jewish conferences and the concept was really to take specific industries create that network um, and each event would have a combination of education but industry specific education um, it would also have networking it would have an expo and most importantly, we would bring mentors. So if let's say we're doing, every May we do a beautiful real estate conference for about 750 people in Brooklyn in the Dyker Heights Golf Course. Not only did we offer what you would expect, but if you had unfettered access to 14 people who are the kings in their field, 
So this guy at this table sitting alone waiting for you to come, he did five billion in real estate transactions this year. The next fellow did two billion in construction. The next fellow is doing you know, three billion in mortgages. And they're doing nothing for the next three hours but waiting for you to walk over and ask your questions, get their business cards, pitch them a deal, ask them for advice. And that was really the clincher for us where we went from zero to hero. Wow. And I model, you know, and once I did one event, which was for e-commerce, so we started originally for Amazon sellers, but then we grew into the e-commerce space. So whether you're an Amazon, eBay, Walmart.com, or if you're selling on e-commerce, where we refer to as e-tail instead of retail, um, so again, we provide the education, the expo, but we also provide that instant access to CEOs, just like you saw today, Howard Jonas, CEO of IDT, drilling oil company, publisher, a billion dollars worth of assets, but he, st he stood in the hallway for an hour and a half just letting people walk over to him and ask him questions, give him the business card, so that, that unfettered access is really what what attracts people to sure. come. So um, I'm very proud that um, that you know I've uh, been able to to do this as and this is again my volunteer work because <laughs> I'm in the construction business and real estate business. But uh, I'm very proud because I feel that you know the the saying goes that you can give a person a fish or you can give them the hook to to do the fishing themselves. And this event specifically, why I'm very excited about today's event is because I felt that there are so many good Jewish organizations and they're all here for the right reasons, helping, offering services, but it's astonishing to see that all organizations do not know what the other organization offers. Well, that's because we're Jews here. Right? <laughs> and we've never come together on the broad spectrum from right to left to really help one set of people. So I reached out together with my partner on this project, uh, Zevi Wolman from Baltimore. And I told him, you know, he's also just, you know, a business partner. He's a manufacturer of uh, toys. And I told him, uh, you know, why don't, why don't we do this? And we called a meeting of 25 Jewish organizations, um, of which about 14 stayed in. And uh, it was a cohesive effort, you know, where each one reached out to their network. Of course, you know, I did the logistics for the event to make it physically happen. But in terms of reaching out to all these different networks, and as you see represented today between men, women, religious, not, uh, you know, all different types of industries, it was uh, a real eye-opener to see how we can all work together. We don't always, I always say, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, just Google it. <laughs> Everybody is doing something. Every organization is helping people. But isn't it so simple if we all get together, collectively we're servicing 6,000 businesses, if we just let each other's clients know about the services the other organization offers, or well, we all got together, and you know, like we had 28 great speakers today. I didn't know all 28 speakers. I shot out an email to all their organizations and I said, who has top tier speakers? And we got Harvard people, we got Columbia, we got Fortune 500 CEOs, we got former Fortune 500 CEOs, best booksellers, uh, people that are number one New York Times list. So it, it was beautiful to see, and it, it, all it took was reaching out. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. Real. Wonderful, yeah, it's, it seems like an incredible event. And I want to kind of go back now uh, to start where I usually start. Uh, I just wanted to get some context, but let's, let's rewind a little bit. 
and turn back the clock a couple of years to where you grew up and kind of what your own personal history is. Obviously, you have this tremendous penchant for uh, for chesed, we call it, you know, kindness and outreach to help disadvantaged populations or even people that are just aspiring to better their lives um, and, and develop their careers or other areas of their of their lives. Where did that all come from? Where did you grow up? What was kind of your the early influences in your own life that drew you towards these kinds of uh, operations? So I grew up with a trust fund in a castle, <laughs> and I had nothing to do all day. Perfect. There you go. Give me the address. Okay. No, so I, I grew up in, uh, in a neighborhood called Pelham Parkway in the Bronx. Sure. And again, I know you have a very wide audience, and most of your uh, your listenership may not be necessarily from New York City, so I shouldn't be speaking like like everybody knows what neighborhood I'm referring to. I think everyone to. knows the Bronx is not, you know, is yeah. not exactly the, the most beautiful area, these, at least these days. Maybe. Yeah. So actually, these days, it, it became more... Is it coming hip again? It's yeah, coming back in? It okay. is. It and is. you got to invest over in the Bronx, the next frontier, right? Right. So it, it's interesting, you know, if we only knew, right? But uh, no, so I grew up in a neighborhood called um, Pelham Parkway in the Bronx. Some of you are familiar with the Bronx Zoo. Sure. And I grew up a few blocks away. Uh, that was kind of my outing. Um, and my father was a rabbi, and he was a Torah scribe, and he was an author. So that's what he did. He wrote 40 books wow. on all Jewish topics. And he specifically, although he was a rabbi and he was an Orthodox rabbi, um, his education and outreach was specifically for the non-religious community because he felt that the Orthodox are, you know, going through a Jewish education. They, they know a lot of what he's going to tell them. But he felt that a lot of you know people, um, even within the Orthodox, but also, or especially amongst the non-Orthodox, he wanted to educate them on their heritage. So he wrote 40 books on Jewish topics, whether tefillin, or about Shabbos, or about kashris, called the kosher manual, about kosher food. Um, you know, and, and as Orthodox people, a lot of us don't know that as well, because you know, we're not educated on all topics in all Jewish, you know, and everything Jewish. But um, he really made it his life's mission to uh, to write the you know to write books and be a Torah scribe, and that was his livelihood. Kind of what's his name? What's his name? My, my father passed away about thirty-five years oh, ago wow. when I was six years old. Wow! And um, his name was Shmuel Rubinstein, and he was the art scroll before art scroll in the sixties and seventies and eighties. And um, yeah, he passed away in nineteen eighty-three. So I, I did grow up somewhat disadvantaged you know I didn't have you know my father passed away when I was six years old he wasn't uh, wealthy by any measure Jewish books are not uh, were yeah. not bestsellers in the 70s <laughs> no I guess not but he was uh, he was a fantastic person and uh, it was a you know great home but um, I went to school and uh, and I didn't uh, I actually never had a formal college education my mother actually used to tell me and again I know you have a lot of college students so I shouldn't be saying this but my mother said, if you go to college, you'll get a great job. If you don't go to college, you'll get a great business. <laughs> she felt you'll hire that, the people coming yeah, out of college. Right? She, she felt that if you get educated, you're going to get an offer at Citibank for 100 grand and 150, and that's where you're going to settle, right. and you're going to want to stay in a safe zone. Right. So it's interesting. You know, she wasn't a big fan of college. And even when I got accepted to Brooklyn Law, she actually did not allow me to go until I would be married. Then once I got married, I couldn't afford to. But <laughs> That's a smart woman right there. <laughs> I know, it's very interesting because years later, last year, I got a scholarship to do a program at Columbia University. Yeah. 
And I was surprised that they didn't even ask me where my high school diploma was. <laughs> Once you do well enough in business, they kind of look past all that. I, yeah. I found that it's very interesting. You know, when you come out of college, people want to see your resume, resume. But at the end of the day, whoever's listening to this, you know, podcast, you should know. Again, I'm not old, but I'm still, I'm 40 years old. So I'm, I'm past the stage of, you know, finished college, 22, looking for a job in that sense. But at the end of the day, when you leave school, people want to see your education. But at the end of the day, once you're good at something, all you have to do is really show how you're an added value. And that's really what will, uh, you know, it's funny, I'm on the board of a hospital. And um, when I came to the hospital uh, at first, you know, I, I had reached out to them actually because I wanted them to give a donation to my JCC <laughs> for a new building that I was putting up. And once they saw that I could be an added value, they offered me a six-figure, uh, a, a nice six-figure position to work for them. In their uh, development office or? Yeah, in the development office. They figured, you know, because of my community. The connections and everything, yeah. Connections, foundations, um, elected officials, grants. And I obviously turned them down because I do work and I do run my JCC. And, you know, I run my own company. But it was just, it was one of those aha moments for me to see that even though I didn't have any education, if you can be an added value to someone, you name your price. Because if I can bring them a million dollars from the state in grants, of course it makes sense for them to offer me 250 grand. 100%. And if I can make good connections for them or I can give them added value in marketing, advertising, uh, you know, what, whatever that added value is, then as long as the number that I'm asking for is much smaller in comparison to the return they feel it's worth, then simple math, I guess. Simple math. <laughs> so I think it's important for your listenership to know, you know, you can focus on education and you should go to school. At the end of the day, remember that when you leave college, don't focus on which job pays you the most amount of money. Focus on what you really want to do. Go to the best company that you can learn from that craft. Right? So if you want to be in the stocks business, go down to the New York Wall Street Stock Exchange, serve coffee, do whatever you got to do to get to that hedge fund, to go to that you know, floor of the stock exchange, to go to that real estate firm, to go to that development company. Learn it from the inside out. Treat it as if you were to be going to Harvard and paying money to be in school. But instead, they're paying you whatever it is to learn that industry. And once you know that industry, then you'll be that real added value that you can take and cash in in a year or two years from now for the real bucks. How do you think growing up the way that you did with sort of a, the legacy of your father and at the same time without his physical presence, do you think that gave you sort of an underdog mentality? Did you feel like you had to really scrap and fight to, to make it financially? How, how do you think that impacted you? So, so although I didn't have, you know, my father passed away and, and I did not grow up with money, I, I, never, I, ne I never really felt extremely disadvantaged in that sense. But obviously, when everyone else was able to go to Florida and Israel and trips and vacations and new coats, and, you know, I, I couldn't do much. I didn't have any of that, of course. The first time I remember flying to, you know, internationally was when I was 18. And the first time I flew even anywhere was when I was 12 and nothing happened between 12 and 18 and <laughs> you know and it, so I was definitely disadvantaged but I remember someone once told me when I was a teenager he said you can either feel bad for yourself or just stop feeling bad for yourself and that's gonna be the first day of the rest of your life oh. you can always be a victim you can always say my father passed away and we have no money or I didn't get an education or my boss is treating me terribly or you could just say 
I'm not going to feel bad for myself, even when you can, when you can try to justify being a victim. And that's going to be the first day of the rest of your life. So even though I didn't, you know, grow up with a lot of material, and it happens to be I wasn't community-minded as a, as a young person. Interesting. I went through the system like every other person. I got married, and um, I started, you know, I started, you know, a marketing company, although I knew nothing about marketing. <laughs> and I figured... That, that shows you're a great marketer, if you can get yeah, people to believe that you can market. <laughs> well, I figured like this. I said, no one was born doing anything. So I said, why don't I dabble in it? I'll start with promotional products because I can imprint pens and t-shirts. And, I'll, I'll, and then I went into a nursing home and after I sold them that pen and t-shirt, I said, what type of incentives do you need? And they said, oh, we need to give social workers incentives to send patients. Mm. We need to keep a retention of our employees because we're going through so many employees the turnover, yeah. and the turnover and finding and recruiting and retaining is costing us just for argument's sake, a million dollars a year because we have at any facility five or six hundred employees. Yeah. So I was thinking, okay, I can get them to spend a hundred grand if I can save them a million bucks. So I started creating different incentive programs. So for instance, I went to one nursing home and said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna create a brochure or a catalog that's gonna have different items. So it could be a flat screen TV and it could be a Bose speaker system. It could be tickets for two to Florida. And we're going to create an incentive program for employees if they come on time, if they stay more than six months, if they recruit another nurse or an aide to the facility so you don't have to pay a recruiting service three months of salary. Right. And it was amazing. And as soon as they did it, I started, I, I, it took about six months to see the numbers and it was a home run. So I started taking, you know, that program to other nursing homes and then it just became, you know, going from printing umbrellas <laughs> to incentive programs and then graphics. And then in 2005, I saw that everyone was making money in real estate and construction. Right. So I said, that's where I need to be. Because when you want to go into an industry, you have to see what percentage of the people in this industry are very successful and rich. And I looked at marketing and I said, it's true there are marketing companies that make it, but if you look at the majority of marketing companies, would you say most of the top people that work there are extremely successful and wealthy? Or is it only the top 2%? And when the top 2% are successful, it depends on their clients and it's so volatile. But when you take a look at real estate and people build their portfolio or people do construction, the bigger numbers, you can really do well. So I decided the next day that I was going to start working in the construction business. But the problem was I didn't know what sheetrock was. And I didn't know if you do a sheetrock before you do electric. So I had saved up at that point $30,000 and purchased my first home. In Brooklyn? Yeah, well, 30000 was the down payment. Down payment. And the mortgage was the, you know... I bought a small home for about 300000 put down 10%. I got a seller's concession, so the bank covered the mortgage, uh, the closing cost. And I hired a company to do construction and watch them. Then I bought another house, and I, um, I actually took a partner in that deal who knew construction. And I just watched often enough, and then I just knew how to at least hire or call the right companies to do the construction until, you know, within that six months, a year, two year period, I became, you know, good enough to be able to wing it. And as time, of course, you know, fast forward from 2005 until 2018, I'm, I'm doing it for a while now. So I kind of picked up the, uh, you know, so yeah. I think, you know, no one is born knowing anything. If you're just deciding you want to do it. Now, just going back to your nonprofit. So 
It was about 10 years ago in 2008 after the recession. Right, I was going to ask you if you started in 05, that gave you a nice three-year cushion, just getting you know your, your legs under you when the whole market crashed. How did that impact? Yeah. Right, so uh, it was difficult because I had a lot of outstanding loans because at that point already, I had matured from purchasing a one-family house to buying development. I was going to ask, are you doing residential, multifamily? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I was doing about 200,000 square feet of residential uh, Everything I, everything I did was residential, but it was residential buildings. Commercial residential type, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it was hitting hard. So I, I decided we have to do something. People are losing work. People are in need of food. Because, you know, it's interesting. Most of us Americans, even if we look, we have a cushy job and we're doing well, it only takes three or four months of not working until you're that guy that needs all the help. Yep. Because most people don't put a million dollars away or can afford to put 500 grand away. Let's say they put 100 grand away or 50 or 20 or zero. How many weeks or months is it going to take when you have a mortgage and two cars and three kids in private school and the grocery bill until you're broke? So that's when I started getting into this motion of, and I created the first project, which was called Project Mazon, which is the Hebrew word for food. And projectmazon.org um, so what I did was I came up with a concept I'm going to get everyone in the community to donate five or ten dollars a week and that's how I'm going to fund helping pay grocery bills for people who can't afford now the beauty about this is is that there's no food pantry there's no people going through humiliation of standing on a food pantry line like in the 1929 lines the beauty about this is you walk into the grocery, you buy whatever you need, you walk to the cashier, you pay like everyone else, and as soon as you give them your account number, it automatically just deducts 100 bucks a week. And then you walk out with the same pride as everyone else. So when you walk into a food pantry, they tell you what you need to eat, they make you wait online, and they humiliate you, you rather just die of starvation. So this was kind of, and also on my end, I figured no overhead, no warehousing, no insurance, no workers, I take the money from the donors, give it straight to the grocery, and and we're great. And I even got a reduction from the grocery to cover the credit card cost. <laughs> I got the 3% to take it I off. I got the 3%. <laughs> and it's 10 years still going. I spend about 150000 on that program. And I mean, I have several other social service projects, but that original is the baby. So it's still full full functioning. And what I think is amazing about that story, I mean, obviously the project itself is is very special but the idea that when you yourself were in the industry and your own business must have been suffering at that time and yet instead of just turning inward and kind of closing ranks and just dealing with your own situation you actually at that very point turned to look outward to help others in crisis and that that was actually my motivation because at that point I was hurting I was negotiating with banks and building departments and loans and thank God you know everything worked out you know it took a little fighting and back and forth and you know whatnot but it was at that time when you feel down like you say you can turn inward you could start feeling bad for yourself you can crash and burn and just say I give up or you can take that that adrenaline from helping others which puts less focus on yourself and you feel more like a giver and a hero than as a uh, victim. 
And that's when I started the project and it was going so well. I felt so successful, even though 9, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. I was fighting banks and finishing projects that, you know, they didn't want to give additional funding because they were so afraid of the market, which caused my projects to stall. But from 5 p.m. until 11 p.m., I felt like I was the, I was like the, the real hero helping people who are having trouble. And it's, a, it's an amazing feeling and it really puts a band-aid on your and you're feeling bad for yourself. So it w was really a win-win. And thank God everything worked out with the real estate. And you know... Uh, How long did, you, did that take to really recover? And It took me from 2008 until 2010 to recover. Because, you know, some uh, what happened is some banks got bought out by other banks and right. they were being very difficult and they wanted a lot of money. Others didn't want to finish funding projects. So it became very difficult. Also, if you went over a timeline in construction, banks would work with you. When they're so nervous that the world is coming to an end, it becomes very difficult. But thankfully, everything really worked out. You know, everything was negotiated, it worked out. And that's another lesson. When you think the entire world is caving in, and I'm speaking about millions of dollars in loans, when a person faces a real problem in life or a real challenge, they can go crazy, they can give in, they can give up. But just know that nothing lasts forever. At the end of the day, it will work out. You can either plow through it, go through hell in, in a handbasket a little bit, but just know that it's not going to last all night. So if you, if you face that challenge, whether it's your personal life or your business life, just know that as long as you, you're positive and you truck through it and speak to somebody, speak to a professional, like today, we have mentors, and like every event, it's all about you know, speak to someone, you know, it works, it really works itself out. Who are some of your principal mentors along this professional journey? Um, so the truth is, is that because I didn't have an education, I didn't really, I didn't have, the reason I do this now is because I didn't have mentors. I didn't know how to access mentors. I grew up only, I got married 20 years ago, but the internet wasn't really happening yet. I didn't know what Yahoo and Google was. Um, I mean, it was out there for like a couple of years, right. but no one really used it. So I remember, I I'm the same access. age, I remember, yeah. I didn't have access, there were no events like there are today, so it always bothered me, like who's, like how do I get to the next step? How do I get mentored? How do I, like who's helping the next generation of people? And because um, I didn't have that access, I'm very, I'm doing this so much on overdrive because of that reason. So I, I, what I decided to do is I had no education. So what I did is I did something which was pretty simple at the time. I found out, I called up the New York, um, the New York Javits Convention Center, the Jacob Javits Center, and I asked them what is the list of all the different trade shows happening. And when they told me things that made sense, I knew that every trade show has a day or two of education before the trade ah. show. And I signed up for all the free courses, because <laughs> some of them are $99, but a lot of them are free. <laughs> so I signed up for all the free courses, maybe pay $25 or $10 or nothing to get in. And that, you know, that initial badge entitles you to all the free seminars. So it costed me anywhere between zero and $25. And I would go, you know, I would spend one day a month or one day in two months and spend the entire day and go to all the classes, all the seminars, learn from all the people. I would ask them questions. You know, some of them thought I was crazy because, you know, I, I but, but at the end of the day, I knew I'm never going to see them in my life again. And that's really where I, you know, where I got, like I went to one, one industry conference that had nothing to do with what I was looking to do for a living because I was doing this marketing and promotional. 
and they were speaking about sales and how to sound like you're from the Midwest with a Midwestern accent <laughs> and you know how to close and you know never say please but offer people the opportunity to partner with you or they, they taught me key phrases or when you want to make an appointment say don't say can I meet with you but say are you available tomorrow at 3 or at 4 so I, I got all this amazing free education from just going once a week to New York City and paying anywhere between zero and twenty-five dollars, and instead of going to school and and, and again, I'm not, I have nothing against school, but again, instead of a lot of theory, this was all very approachable, yeah, concrete knowledge, concrete yeah. knowledge. Take it and run with it, and that's actually what I attribute my little knowledge to. It just it sounds like even though you didn't have the uh, the education in as you mentioned in the formal sense, but you had this deep curiosity, which you know kind of constantly was driving you into new industries and and also it seems like a real lack of fear to attacking new areas of knowledge that you know other people might say well I didn't get the training in marketing or construction or whatever it might be and you just kind of dove right in and said that's not gonna stop me but what I found if I can leave a a tip or two with your uh, listeners I would say that if you forget everything else we discussed in this conversation, remember one thing. First of all, it's not what you say, but it's how you say it. And although you don't want to act arrogant, if you speak with confidence, like you know what you're talking about, with poise, 93% of what you say is nonverbal. They look at your body language, and if you seem confident and a nice guy, Nice guys don't necessarily finish last. <laughs> so 93% of what they communicate from you is your nonverbal. So if I have to leave you with one tip, it's when you speak, speak with poise and speak with confidence, whether you know what you're talking about <laughs> or not. Fake it until you make it, huh? Fake it until you make it. And people like good guys. What's interesting, though, is that in today's era of social media and sort of virtual conversations, a lot of that 93% is sort of cut off you know, and we don't have the, as much ability to influence people in that way. That's very true. And the second thing I would actually tell you is, you know, you can send out LinkedIn and messages and create plans, but if you go to conferences that one-on-one, you just approach someone, even if you know, you know, actually we're in the Hilton Hotel, do you know that the owner, I bumped into him by mistake, the sweetest guy in the world. I spoke to him about other projects. I spoke to him about charity wow. work. People are much more approachable than you think because in your mind you think, oh, this guy is worth a billion dollars, he's never going to talk to me. It's not true. If you walk over like Mr. Nice Guy with confidence, poise, and you say, thank you so much for doing this, or I had a quick question for you, and you approach them, those personal conversations, that's really what's going to take you. People do business with people. Companies don't do business with companies. So when you approach a Fortune 500 CEO and he likes you because you made that one-on-one conversation, which you would never get, which you would never get through a, through a, um, you know, which you would never get through an email. Go to conferences, meet the one-on-ones, break that cold ice by just you know walking over. Don't think too much. Don't think the fact that the guy has a billion dollars he won't speak to you. That's really what's going to take you to the next level. They say he puts on his pants in the morning too? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so I think to wrap it up, speak with confidence, whether you know what you're talking about or not. Speak with poise. Go to conferences. Get as much free education or up to $25 (laughs) as you can. You know, never feel bad for yourself. 
just keep on trucking. The day that you stop feeling bad for yourself is the first day of the rest of your life. And you just tell us, um, starting, starting to wrap up, tell us a little bit about your, um, some other side passions. You mentioned to me off, off record or offline that you're also a singer. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, sure, yeah, so um, I am uh, I'm a, a musician and uh, I, play, I, I, do, I play the guitar and the piano, but I, I'm a singing musician as well. So I put out, um, I did put out uh, music. I actually have a, a, a bunch of YouTube videos. Uh, my, my claim to fame is one called Window in Heaven. It's a beautiful song that I wrote for my father. Wow. It has about uh, 250,000 hits, so. Beautiful. You know, that's nice. I mean, it, just on the YouTube, but it, it does have, you know, the other avenues too, but um, I have a great song called One Tiny Light. And these are all in, in English, most of your songs, or? No, so I have uh, English and Hebrew. I sing a lot of different genres, anywhere from cantorial to opera. Wow. To the Josh Groban style, to uh, Yiddish and uh, Hebrew. So I, I, I dabble in different genres. So my first album was English and Hebrew. And my next two music videos are both English, Window in Heaven and One Tiny Light. And, uh, you know, check it out. It's free. And this week, Friday, I gave out an album in all Yiddish, which is the old Jewish language of, uh, you know, pre-war. And I did it as, I really did it as a project for Holocaust survivors. Wow. What I did is I dug up Yiddish songs that were composed by people who did not survive the Holocaust. And as a tribute to them, I put a beautiful album of 10 songs together. And I'm giving, I'm, I'm doing a launch party this Thursday at the Museum of Jewish Heritage at 12 p.m. Beautiful. And uh, I'm going to have the Swedish ambassador open up the event. And I have several elected officials that are going to come speak. And I'm going to have 200 Holocaust survivors in attendance. Yeah. And we're going to give them the CD for free, but also I'm going, we're going to have 30 social service organizations in attendance, and they're going to take each 300 CDs to give wow. anywhere between three and 5,000 copies to Holocaust survivors because the Holocaust survivors are in their 80s and 90s. They sit at home, they're bored, they need that extra spark in their life. And I thought, what better than to give them in the language that they grew up with? Taste of their youth. Right, so I gave them a beautiful CD. I mean, I'm going to give them a beautiful CD with a booklet inside that has it in Yiddish. It, each song is also translated in English for the Yiddish and pair. And uh, that was a joke. <laughs> but it is translated in English, so people who don't necessarily understand Yiddish will still appreciate the song because they'll hear the music, they'll understand the wording. And um, I'm very excited about the project because even though I, you know, I don't really produce Yiddish music. Yeah. This was one that was really close to my heart. Wow. And then in March, my English album comes ah. out. Just and in case we thought you were bored. Yeah, <laughs> and the English album is entitled Flying High, and it has nothing to do with drugs. <laughs> or the Holocaust. <laughs> yeah. Just in wrapping up, what are any future social service projects, any dreams that you have in, in the immediate or, or near-term future that you're working on, all these conferences, all these you know, social service projects, what's, what's next? What, do you, what have you not yet conquered, so to speak, among your dreams? Well, just within you know, the realm of singing, I'm actually doing two concerts at the Master Theater in Brooklyn on December 9 with Nissen Black. Oh, sure. I interviewed him here, so yeah. he's been on the so, podcast. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to have two nice concerts, and you know, I have one Thursday as well. But um, my passion continues, so I have an amazing e-commerce conference on February 12. I have an elder care conference this coming Sunday. 
Um, and I also, um, I'm, I'm very passionate about social services, so I actually have a program that I'm relaunching called Pantry on the Go. And it's essentially taking food, leftover food from catering calls that never left the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So I know that they're, you know, it's good, fresh, expensive catered food, but it never touched hands. Right? It's still sure. in the kitchen. And I have a refrigerated truck that picks it up every evening from 8 p.m. to 12 a.m. And it brings it to the JCC. We repackage it in frozen TV dinners. And we distribute it amongst 25 centers, Jewish and non-Jewish communities, to give... Uh, 25,000 meals and we're trying to hit 50,000 meals and I actually got a grant so uh, the city is going to be giving us our first refrigerated truck. Oh wonderful. Yeah so next week we hope to get the truck. So we did it, I started the project several months ago but we're going to do a relaunch to really take it to the next level. So that's exciting and all the upcoming conferences are exciting as well and uh, I guess when I have nothing to do I'll probably figure out <laughs> a new uh, project. An, now, but seriously, I think what's important is, you know, if, if I really thought into what I'm doing, I wouldn't do it because you have to be crazy sometimes to do a lot of these things. But I found that, you know, you, once, when you think about doing a project, you give it 24 hours and you do it and then you figure it out later. Even though it's really not the conventional correct way of doing things, if you think about it too much, have too many board meetings and then have meetings about the meetings and then figure out everything that can go wrong, you're never going to do it. You have to think of an idea, figure out in your head how you're going to leverage or mitigate the risk of a full exposure. And once you figure out, okay, I have an anchor or two anchors and okay, I have an idea of how this can possibly work, just jump into it. I'll tell you one, one story and uh, I think we'll close with that because the conference is about to close Yep. and people think I, I, I'm missing. <laughs> so there's a very large bank that has a party and they're doing a holiday party at the poolside party at the CEO's home, Fortune 500 company. Everyone shows up, all the top salespeople, and the CEO quiets everyone, taps on his glass, and he says, I'm looking for people with courage. I'm looking for people that want to succeed, that want to die to succeed. I have a swimming pool right here, and I have a shark in the pool. Who has the gall to jump into the pool and swim to the other side and get out and you know what if you're gonna do that this year you get three hundred and fifty thousand dollar bonus above your sales calls everyone loves the three hundred and fifty thousand but no one's crazy and then suddenly you see this Jewish guy jump into the boat he's trying to swim. <laughs> and he swims and he swims and then you see the shark after him and by the skin of his teeth he jumps out of the pool someone pulls him out and he makes it out alive and everyone's clapping but they also think like he needs psychiatric help and everyone's clapping and the CEO is like wow and he says this is an example of somebody that has courage that's really willing to do whatever it takes to succeed you're gonna get the 350,000 he tells this salesman but I need to know what made you do it better yet Forget about the 350000 I'll give you whatever you want. What would you like? And the fellow thinks for a minute and he says, I just want to know who that SOB was that pushed me into the pool. <laughs> and what do we learn from this story? That sometimes you have, you, know, you have to be innovative and you do your projects, but sometimes you need that SOB to push you into the pool. <laughs> so I want to leave this with your listeners. You know, push yourself, and if not, just get an SOB to push you in the pool. <laughs>
<laughs> there you go. Gia Rubenstein, as I said at the beginning, the uh, I think the title of CEO of the JCC of Marine Park is a slight misnomer because really you are a person who's managing dozens of different projects across many different disciplines, um, both business and kindness, social services, and it's really an honor to speak to you and to have you on our program. Shia Rubenstein, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Such an honor to be here again, and thank you for the opportunity. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.